One of the reasons we meet on any given, on a Sunday or on a Wednesday is because we believe God's Word. We believe, we believe in the God the Word testifies about. We believe in the Savior. Uh, the Word of God promises and then reveals. We have experienced the salvation the Word of God describes. We believe God's Word. If we were to try to describe God's Word and use only one word, probably the best word to use would be unique. Now, the omniscient Google defines unique as being the only one of its kind, being unlike anything else. God's Word is the only book of its kind in existence. No other book ever written has ever been like God's Word, and no ever book uh, ever that will ever be written will be like God's Word. Now, there are several facts about God's Word that reveal its uniqueness. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors. Among them were kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, statesmen, musicians, scholars, and shepherds. The Bible was written in many different places at many different times and by people experiencing many different emotions. The Bible was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. The Bible was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. The Bible was written with many different literary styles. There's prose and poetry, historical narrative, romance, law, biography, parable, allegory, and prophecy. The Bible addresses hundreds of difficult issues without a single contradiction. The Bible is a book of great diversity, yet in spite of this, it unfolds a single continuous story. And it does so without ever contradicting itself. The Bible has for its main character, God himself, made known to us through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's word is indeed unique. And this uniqueness was not accidental. God always intended for his word to be unique among all the books on the planet. Tonight we're going to look at one of the reasons, one more of the reasons, God's word is unique. So open God's word to Isaiah 55. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11 tonight. Should be on page 560 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Isaiah 55 and verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it produce and sprout and provide seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I sent it. The title of the message tonight is God's Effectual Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We have gathered here tonight, Lord, with a desire to meet with you. Uh, Father, a desire to have your word speak to our hearts, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to change us, to convict us, to do whatever it is that needs to be done in our lives. Father, we're none of us. Exactly like Jesus, so there is work that needs to be done in our lives. As we look at what your word says, Father, let us take it to heart. Father, make us a people, like you talk about in another part of Isaiah, people who tremble at the word of God. Father, as we look at your word and the, the effects it has upon our lives, Father, let us long for the things that are good, let us fear the things that are bad, and let us take your word. Father, live it out in our daily lives, let people begin to see a difference in us. Because of who we are and how we live. Because we have taken and we are a people of the book. 
Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. Just have your way in all of our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So God says his word is effectual or effective to do whatever it is he wants it to do. It will accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. God says his word is like the rain that falls down from the heavens. Now, now for us, a lot of times rain that falls down the heavens is like a mythical thing. But here lately we know what that looks like. Rain falling from the heavens and all of the things that grow up. How amazing is all of the green around us all of the time right now? That is, God's good rain has caused the growth that we see all around us. Similarly, God's word, it goes out and it produces what God intends for it to do. It produces everything necessary to have life and life more abundant, to have eternal life God intends for us to have. But look at verse 11. First, notice it says, so will my word be, which goes out of my mouth. Now, the idea of this being my word or God's word is the key to the promise. My words are not effective. Your words are not effective. My ideas are not effective. Your ideas are not effective. My opinions are not effective. Your opinions are not effective. God's word and only God's word is what is guaranteed to be effective to do what God wants done. This is why it is so important for us to give biblical answers to the questions people have for us. Somebody comes to us and asks us a question about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about the church, about about eternal or moral or things that the Bible addresses. It is important for us to give a biblical answer because anything else is not promised to accomplish anything in God's economy. Only God's word is. So if we want to evangelize the lost or disciple a young believer, then we must give them God's word. Look again at verse 11. We're told, so it will be for, with uh, be which so will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. The amplified version says <clears throat> it will not return empty, but it adds it by saying without producing any effect. Useless. God's word will not be useless. It will not produce no effect. It will always do something. Now this is a a powerful And a hope-filled and a hope-producing promise. God's Word always works. God's Word has supernatural power all on its own to do something in the heart and the life of every person who reads it and every person who hears it. There are, I believe, two keys to really understanding this, embracing this, experiencing this. The first key is what what God explicitly states in the last of verse 11. It will accomplish what I desire and it will succeed in the purpose for which I sent it. God's word accomplishes God's will. God's word does what God wants it to do. This is an admonition for us as we seek to study and share God's word. We mustn't come to God's word and try to find out what we want it to say so that we can share that with other people. God's word is not going to do what we want it to do. God's word is not going to do what we desire it to do. God's word is going to do what God wants it to do. The second key isn't explicit in this passage, but I do believe it's implicit here and all throughout the rest of God's word. And that is what God's word produces depends upon how we respond. God's word does something every single time we hear it. Or read it. 
And the reality is every person always responds to God's word. Everyone who reads God's word responds to it in that moment. Everyone who hears God's word responds to it in that moment. There is no other option. We see it, we hear it, we respond. Now, in our day, we have many people who believe what I call the myth of neutrality. And the myth of neutrality says we can be neutral about God, about his word, about the gospel, about Jesus, and even the appeal of the gospel. Those who have embraced this this myth of neutrality, they would never consider themselves to be hostile toward Jesus. Not hostile toward the word, not hostile toward the gospel. They would probably even say they've not rejected the word. They've not rejected Jesus. They've not rejected the gospel. Instead, they have decided not to decide. They have chosen not to choose. They just read it and it's interesting, but they're not making a decision based upon that. And in their minds, this neutral position is acceptable. But it's not. This idea that we can be neutral toward Jesus or be neutral toward the word is a complete myth of of a human, really probably of a demonic origin, but at the very best, a human origin, at the very worst, a demonic deception. There is no way to be neutral toward Jesus, toward His gospel, toward His word. Look at what Jesus said. The one who is not with me is what? Against me. And the one who does not gather, gather with me what? Scatters. Jesus leaves no room for neutrality. Where he or his word or his gospel are concerned. There is no way not to respond to Jesus. There is no way not to respond to the gospel. There is no way not to respond to God's word. We respond by receiving it. We respond by rejecting it. But we always, always, always respond. Everyone always responds to God's word. Every time they read it, every time they hear it, every time. Listen to what the great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. He said the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Every person always responds every time. Time brings us to our central truth for the message tonight. What God's word does in us depends on whether we reject it or receive it, because those are the only two options. When we read God's word, when we hear God's word, we either receive it or we reject it. Those are the only two things we can do. It always brings us to a place of decision and we make one of those two decisions every single time. But as we think about the idea of receiving and rejecting, we must remember In the context of God's word, rejecting or receiving is determined far more by what we do than what we say. But according to what we read in God's word, it is possible for any of us to affirm that all of this book is the inspired and infallible word of God and yet still end up rejecting it because we don't put it into practice. And for for practical purposes, we reject what we don't practice. We reject what we don't obey. 
Now, we probably want to push back against that because, again, there's something within us that kind of wants to believe a, a neutral position. But when you look at God's word, you can't help but notice how seriously God takes our response, our our actual response, not our verbal, yes, that's the word of God response, but our actual response. Let me give you just a quick sample. Show you what I mean. The person who does wrong defiantly, whether he's a native or a stranger, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people since he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. And that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt be upon him. Now, notice, break the commandment. So the doing wrong is talking about going against God's word, not doing what God has said to do. Now, he says that they do it defiantly. Now, defiantly, it pictures, I know what God has said, but I'm going to do something else instead. And that defiantly disobeying is a, a rejection of God's word. That's how God defines it. God says the one who defiantly disobeys his word is blaspheming the Lord. Now that, I mean, that's intense, right? To say, I know what God has said to do and choose to do something else. That is blaspheming God. That is defiantly disobeying God and blaspheming the Lord. But it's not only that. Because not only are we... In defiant disobedience, blaspheming the Lord. But he also says we have despised the word of God. We are to despise something is to feel contempt or a deep disgust for. I mean, in this case, God's word. Again, that's pretty strong. When we defiantly disobey God's word, we are showing contempt or deep and intense disgust for God's word. Now, again, notice who this is written to. Or who this applies to, whether he is a native or a stranger. Now, the strangers we know, those are the non-Israelites. Those are non-Jews. But the natives, these are the Israelites. These are the people who would say they're in a covenant relationship with God. These are the people who would say they believed God's word is God's word. And so the lesson being that this applies to the stranger and to the native is that it applies to all people everywhere. Whether professing Christian or professing atheist. When they defiantly disobey God's word, they're rejecting it. They're blaspheming the Lord. And they're expressing contempt or disgust for God's word. It's pretty weighty. That's why I say what God's word does in us depends on whether we receive it or reject it. And that receive and reject are the only options we have. But this isn't the only place we see this. Consider this from 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul has just written about sexual purity and, and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in sanctification and honor. And he says, therefore, the one who rejects this and this is this teaching, the teaching he had just given is not rejecting man. The God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul wants them to understand that everything he just said, that was inspired by God. God told him to write that down and to reject that teaching. That's not to reject Paul. It's not to reject Paul's interpretation of God's word. That is to reject God himself. Again, that, that's a pretty weighty thought. 
Anytime we reject God's inspired instructions to us, we are rejecting the God who gave us those instructions. And, and one final passage to kind of just drive it home. The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Now this is important because so often in, in these sort of things, we, we apply this to doing the things God has said not to do. And we don't think about the opposite. right? And this is not doing the things that God has said we are to do. It is just as much a sin to know what God has said to do and not do it as it is to know God has said not to do something and then go ahead and do it. Still a rejection of his word, still blaspheming his name. It is still treating his word with contempt. And all of this, everything we've talked about, it applies to believers and unbelievers alike. So God's word, it always accomplishes something in us and through us and for us when we read it or when we hear it. And what it accomplishes depends on how we respond, on whether we receive it or whether we reject it. What I initially wanted to do was show some ways that God's word it, it, it impacts us when we reject it and then show some ways it impacts us when we receive it. But as I got to studying, there's, there was too much um, for both of those on one night. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at what happens when we reject God's word. Next week, we're going to look at what happens when we receive God's word. And then I think we're going to spend, I've got another idea from this passage bouncing around in my head. Uh, we'll spend one more week talking about it being God's word. But tonight, I, I want to show you at least, and this is from God's word. God's word reveals at least five ways rejecting God's word spiritually harms us. Right, so first, rejecting God's word hinders our prayers. So to know what God has said to do and not do it, or to know what God has said not to do and then to do it, it, it will hinder our prayers. We, we see this in lots of places, but this is probably one of the clearest. One who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now, by turning his ear away from listening to the law, he's not talking about merely listening. He's not like they, they, they plug their ears when somebody's reading the law. He's talking about not doing it. They know it and they don't do it. To really, to get perspective on how significant this is, notice the last word of the sentence. It's an, it's an abomination. That his prayer is an abomination when we're living in rebellion against God's word. And, and the reason that word is so significant is because if you've ever watched TV and you've ever seen like a conservative Christian on a talk show that was asked about homosexuality, one of the things that they almost always say is they quote an Old Testament verse that says homosexuality is a what? An abomination. And they explain the word abomination, it means it sort of brings disgust to God. And the picture is that, that, I mean, that's the same word. That is the same word used for homosexuality in other places. So when we know what God has said and we reject God's word, we just don't want anything to do with it. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to disobey it here. We're going to disobey it there. And then we go to God in prayer. Our prayers are an abomination. Our seeking God for help while we're living in disobedience to him is an abomination to God. That's, again, that's significant. That's, that's big. We cannot 
reject God's word and expect to have a powerful prayer life. Rejecting God's word always hinders our prayers. Secondly, rejecting God's word hurts our relationship with Jesus. We cannot walk with Jesus while rejecting or disobeying his word. One of my favorite passages that talks about this is Amos. Do people walk together unless they've agreed to meet? And the picture is, we if we walk together, we have to be going in the same direction. If you and I said we're going to walk somewhere together, and I'm going to go north and you're going to go south, we're not walking together, are we? Similarly, Jesus is, is walking somewhere. And He's invited us to follow Him, to go with Him. But the path He's going always is in line with God's Word. And when we deviate from God's Word, we deviate from that path of walking with Jesus. Our response to God's Word determines in a lot of ways whether or not we're going to walk with Jesus or not. But not only what we see here, but look at what Jesus said. The one who has my commandments and keep them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Now, we all have the commandments, don't we? All of us have a Bible in one form or another that we can read in our language, probably our preferred translation. So the question isn't do we have his commandments, but do we keep them? Now, Jesus says that if we keep his commandments, it shows that we, we love him. I don't have time to get much into that. There's other places to talk about if we don't keep his commandments, we don't love him. But what I want to focus on this last part. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and, re- and reveal myself to him. Now, that we will be loved. We're not loved because we obey Jesus. Jesus loves everyone. That's what the Bible says. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what does that mean? It means there are experiences of God's love that we're going to miss out on if we're living in rebellion against His Word. That when we reject His Word, there are experiences of His love that we're going to miss out on and He will reveal Himself. There are experiences of His presence and His power and His intimacy, closeness with us that we are going to miss as we reject His Word. Again, I think that's huge. Do we do we really want an intimate, close Just an abiding relationship with Jesus. Well, then how we respond to his word determines whether or not we have that. And there are just experiences of Jesus and with Jesus we miss when we reject and disobey his word. So we we cannot have a close relationship with Jesus and live in disobedience to his word at the same time. So rejecting God's word hinders our prayers. Rejecting God's word hurts our relationship with Jesus. Rejecting God's word hardens our hearts. God's word often speaks about the importance of the heart in in our lives. Now, in God's word, the heart is considered to be the the control center of the life. In, In our culture, sees the heart as the seed of the emotions. The biblical culture saw the heart as the seed of the will. And what we see over and over again in God's word is the surest way to know what our hearts are like. Look at our lives. Jesus said what comes out of our mouth is the overflow of our heart. 
So we could look at our, our words, listen to the words we say. And they say something about the nature, the condition of our heart. But it's not just our words. Jesus also said that the actions of our life demonstrate what's in our hearts. So our, our words matter. Our attitudes matter. And our actions matter. And, and, the, and what the content of our words, the, the ways of our attitudes, the actions of our life Reveal what is really in our heart. That's why we're told to guard our heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. All of that to say rejecting God's word has a negative impact on our hearts. Hebrews 3 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, then harden your hearts as when they provoke me. On the day of trial in the wilderness. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. To the people he's writing to. So they will not turn away from Jesus. And go back to the law. But notice. Before he quotes Psalm 95. The all caps is the quote. He says just as the Holy Spirit. Is saying to them. The Holy Spirit. Through this author is. Is urging them. To listen. To God's voice. But not just listen, but to to hear it and heed it. And what he tells them is, if they don't hear it and heed it, that they will hear it and reject it. And that rejection will harden their hearts against God. Again, I think this is an, an immensely big thing for us to grasp. Reading God's word is, it's, I guess in some ways, a dangerous thing. Because we are encountering the, the voice of the living God every time we read it. The living God speaks through the living word. And, and the Holy Spirit is going to urge us to hear and heed. Hear it, do it. Put it into practice. Don't just say, wow, that was good. Do what it says. And if we don't hear and heed... That pulling back, that lack of heeding hardens our hearts as an act of rebellion. And that's, again, that is huge for us to understand. This is a unique book. No other book has that kind of authority. No other book has that kind of power. No other book can do what the Bible does. When we read it, we are hearing or reading the voice of God. And we are called to make a decision about what we've read. Hear and heed or reject. And what we do has impact upon our lives one way or the other. Every time we reject God's word, our hearts harden just a little. Toward God, toward the word of God, toward the things of God in general. Every time. Over time, it really has a super negative impact as it continually hardens, calluses our hearts against God. Oh, we must listen carefully when God speaks. 
So rejecting God's word hinders our prayers, hurts our relationship with Jesus, hardens our hearts. And then fourthly, it leads to self-deception. Every time we reject truth, we open ourselves up to believe a lie. But if, if we don't believe 2 plus 2 equals 4, we are going to believe 2 plus 2 equals something. There won't just be a void. There will be some sort of an answer that, that we feel compelled to give to that question. What does 2 plus 2 equal? And if we can't find an answer, or no one else will supply an answer, we'll make one up on our own. And it's very similar with spiritual truth. If we reject God's truth, then we'll end up embracing a lie in its place. And very often it's a lie we tell ourselves. Look at at what this says. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who, who do what? Deceive themselves. So this verse is really important for a lot of reasons. But one is it connects doing with the deception. Right? We're not supposed to just be hearers of the word, but we're to be doers of the word. And that when we hear without heeding, we deceive ourselves. Always. Because here's what we do. We, we come to God's word. We read it. We hear it. We feel the, the pull to make a decision. And then what we do is we make up an excuse as to why this doesn't apply to us. Why we don't have to do what is mentioned or what is said in God's word. Now, we don't call it an excuse. We call it a reason. And we develop a set of reasons as to why we don't have to do what God has said in his word. And these reasons are developed to convince other people that we're right in not doing what God has said. So if somebody were to come to us and say, hey, why don't you go to church or, or, or why don't you do this? That we can say, well, here's what's going on in my life. Here's the reasons why I don't do what God's word says to do. And we want to give that answer to alleviate their fears, to, to convince them we're right. But the person we first must convince is our selves. And so we will deceive ourselves. We will make up our reasons. We will work it out. We will come up with things like, well, well, me and God, we have our own deal. Well, my relationship with God isn't based upon corporate worship. Well, I'm just not one of those people who just reads like the Bible says. That's just not who I am. We, we come up with these reasons. We want to convince ourselves And once we're self-convinced, we then begin to convince others. Rejecting God's word, it leads to self-deception. And then lastly, rejecting God's word opens us up to demonic deception. So it, it hinders our prayers, hurts our relationship with Jesus, hardens our hearts, leads to self-deception. And then lastly, opens us up to demonic deception. Now this sounds strong. But I'm going to prove to you that's what it does. As I said, when we reject God's truth, we open ourselves up to a lie. And if we don't apply, if we don't supply the lie for ourselves, luckily, there's an enemy. And he has just 
the answer for us. Just the reason. And God's word tells us about this enemy. He is a liar and a deceiver. And he is more than happy to supply us with the reasons as to why we're okay in rejecting God's truth. Now, God's word warns us strongly about this. The Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, and clearly we're in much latter times when Paul wrote this, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, there are two important truths to see in this. Well, three. First, the Spirit explicitly says, right? So, this is divine revelation. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't Paul's idea. Holy Spirit was clear. Paul's not even really interpreting what the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit explicitly said this to him. Secondly, notice it says, fall away from the faith. So this isn't just talking about people who are involved in the crazy cults. Sure, it's those people. They have believed doctrines of demons. But this is warning to church people. This is a warning to those who would say they're disciples of Jesus. This is a warning to those who would say they are born again Christians. And then, thirdly, it's a warning against embracing false teaching. Falling away from the faith. Thirdly, notice where this false teaching comes from. This lies and not truth comes from. Deceitful spirits giving out King James says, doctrines of demons. Now, that's that's what's going on all around us all the time. You can Google anything the Bible says. Is this right? Is this true? Is this a sin? Is Jesus the only way? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And I promise you, there are people who have been to seminaries, who have doctors in front of their name, and they've been to seminary. They may even pastor churches. And they will explain to you why God's Word is not right, why Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He didn't really die on the cross. He's not really the only way to heaven. Now, these guys haven't found any new teaching, any new doctrine. They, they don't have any new revelation. The Holy Spirit is not explicitly saying to them something else. They are paying attention to deceitful spirits. And they are promoting... The doctrines of demons. And because of their teaching and because of the ease of the access to it, many are falling away from the faith. Probably all of us know people who at one time were were probably would say they were devoted disciples of Jesus. But now they have embraced crazy things, false things. And they have fallen away from the faith. Well, there's the answer of what's going on in their life. There's the answer of of why they believe what they believe. But a question we could ask is, why would anyone believe that stuff? Why would someone believe these things that are so contradictory to God's word? Why would they believe something Paul calls given by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons? God's word tells us why. Talks about the Antichrist. His coming is going to be in accord with activity of Satan, with all the power of false signs and wonders, with deception and wickedness for those who perish. But notice this last part. Because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
And there's how they opened themselves up to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. They did not accept the love of the truth. In other words, they, they didn't love the truth. They didn't accept God's truth. And when they didn't accept God's truth, they rejected God's truth. Along comes the enemy and he supplies a lie that they embrace instead. Again, when we reject a truth from God's word, it doesn't just leave a void. Something is going to fill that void. Probably we know people who have just outlandish beliefs. And when we hear them talking about what they believe and why, it sounds like something out of bizarro world. How could they believe something so clearly wrong? Well, it's because they have rejected God's truth. And by rejecting God's truth, they opened themselves up to demonic deception. But again, it's important for us to understand this does not apply just to people who have wackadoo beliefs. This applies to people who are church people. Because it's a warning about people falling away from the faith. What happens to anyone could happen to us if we reject God's truth. Anytime we reject God's truth on any issue, we open ourselves up to demonic Deceptions. We open ourselves up to believe, to listen to deceiving spirits who teach doctrines of demons. Now, be clear. Demons aren't like manifesting and saying, behold, I am Balfamek from the outer hell and I want to give you this teaching. It's not like that. It doesn't come in that way. It comes from people who maybe appear kind or people who appear educated. Or, or it may come from people who have, well, I received a new revelation from the Holy Spirit or, or something like that. But regardless of, of what the, the front of this teaching is, behind it is a deceiving spirit and it is a doctrine of demons. This is why you have denominations. And, I mean, in our nation, entire denominations... Who at one point were faithful, godly, biblical, conservative, preached the gospel, took it to the nations. They are now apostate. Embracing all manner of nonsense. All manner of evil. Affirming of it. Denying the Lord who bought them. And it's because they rejected a truth in one place. And it opened them up. To demonic deception. And it spread from one place to another place to another place. Until they were in full blown apostasy. But it's not just denominations. Denominations are made up of people. This is how people who were once disciples of Jesus. End up in believing. Embracing. And affirming. Things contrary to God's word. Things God's word calls a sin. Because when we reject what God's word says on this subject, we open ourselves up. And our world is plenty full. The spirit of the Antichrist moving through to supply an answer for us. It is important how we hear God's word. 
it is important how we respond to God's word. At first, I was concerned because we're ending on a, not really a happy note, a somber note. But the more I thought about it, I think sometimes it's, it's good to just let the weight of hard truths settle on us. Because our culture is really geared, acclimated toward quick resolution. I mean, we think about it on television, right? I mean, in a 60-minute time frame or a 28-minute time frame, cops catch the bad guy, they prosecute them, and they go to jail. Families have deep problems, they resolve them, and everyone is happy, and everything goes on. But that sort of quick resolution... It's not really the real world we live in, is it? Things like that tend to go on and on. Tension tends to to hang around for a a significant period of time before it's resolved. It's not always a bad thing. And in this case, I think it is a good thing. It is good for us to feel the weight of what happens when we reject God's word by not putting it into practice. It's good for us to feel the severity of it. Because even those of us who would say we are deeply devoted disciples of Jesus who come out on a Wednesday night in July. It is possible that we can get so comfortable with God's word, we forget it is truly God's word. We forget the uniqueness of it. We forget the authority that it brings. And we can get kind of sloppy in our taking it and doing it. And when we do, any number of these things begin to happen in our lives. We must be aware of this. We must be aware of this. What we've talked about tonight should make us take what we're doing when we read God's Word, when we hear God's Word, and be very diligent, be very careful to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Did anybody...